Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, I see you are wearing a trilobite today. I am. And it's an awesome necklace. It's actually made by Lucy Lamb. Yep, yeah, oh, that's my sister. Yeah, I was going to say, um, your sister, L-U-C-Y-E, Lamb. Mm-hmm. And... It is so cool. It's a it's a trilobite that she actually created by looking at diagrams and pictures. She doesn't actually have the fossil itself, but she did this out of clay polymer. And um, it is so awesome. If you guys want to check it out, go to her Etsy shop. But it is officially the mascot of today's podcast. Yes, the the trilobite is of course a denizen of the Ordovician period. This is an ancient period of Earth that. I, I barely remember from science class. Mm-hmm. Generally, it would get one illustration, and it's kind of this uh, this world of weird, squiddy creatures and strange-looking, brutal-looking fish, and, of course, the trilobite. And the trilobite always had sort of center stage in these. So, yeah, my, my sister sent you this necklace, and, uh, yeah, she's on Etsy, Lucy Lamb Designs. So it's it's kind of the, the mascot for today's episode. And uh, I I do understand that your your daughter named the trilobite as well. She does, yeah. yeah. I mean, she did, and she plays with it a lot. She calls it Gong. Gong. And it has many adventures. <laughs> um, but is that that's how much it arrests the imagination? I think that you know, even a three year old is like, whoa, and it does kind of put you in the mindset of, okay, if if this creature was hanging out during this era, what was this era like? And as you say, it's it's kind of one of those periods that gets passed over. Um, you know, Jurassic is much sexier, uh, mm-hmm. but it does, is very interesting. And uh, we sort of it sort of got our attention when we were reading the book Kraken, yes, which talks about cephalopods. And in it, the author describes the period as: for a while, the seas were deliciously warm, and the planet seems to have been a kind of Garden of Eden, a time of Nirvana that allowed life to flourish in many different forms. And this became a, a very uh, important intersection of how life developed, even though, again, this is not uh, what the sexiest period. Right. Um, the seas were teeming with creatures. Yeah, and as we'll, as we'll discuss, these creatures, as small and non-flashy as they often are, they really laid the groundwork for the, the many more diverse species that would come in the ages to follow. It's really a fascinating time period when you... When you when you take the time to to really think about what it was like 400 million years ago, mm-hmm. uh, an age of supercontinents and shallow oceans, and for the most part, uh, up until the end, generally nice, warm, rich times. Yeah, and we're talking about a uh, period of about 45 million years. So a lot obviously mm-hmm. went on during this time period. But let's just do a quick overview of the geologic time scale. Um, because this, you know, in case anybody's wondering, like, okay, I know Jurassic, I know about Ordovician. Um, what I wanted to talk about is that geologists have been working on this since the 1800s, this idea that we can organize Earth time or deep time, as they call it, mm-hmm. the Earth's history. And it starts with something called boundary events. And a good example of this is the boundary between the Permian and the Triassic. Well, now, now, first of all, how old is the Earth? Because a guy at a parade the other day told me it was 2,000 years old. Oh, and, and so okay. I, that doesn't sound right, so I thought I'd, I'd check it. I think it's a bit older than that. Yeah, about 4.6 million years. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so obviously you have to arrange that amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we call that deep time. So, so we have something like 21 different 
periods later yeah. in the map. Yeah, within these boundary events. Yeah. And the boundary events are marked by global extinction, for, for instance, and that would be between the Permian and Triassic. Uh, there's the global extinction in which a large percentage of the Earth's plants and animal species were eliminated. Another example is the boundary between Precambrian and the Paleozoic, which is marked by the first appearance of animals with hard parts. So you're thinking insects, fish, reptiles. And then within that um, construct, there are eons, eras, and periods, and then uh, even in shorter time periods of epochs. So we are talking about the Ordovician period to today, and as you say, uh, 400 million and change, uh, some accounts, uh, 488 million years ago, lasting for about 45 million years in this warm, soupy, wonderful atmosphere, very tropical, uh, that ushered in so many different species because of this climate. Robert B. Laughlin wrote an excellent article uh, called What the Earth Knows in The American Scholar, and uh, he gets into a lot of deep issues, but he starts off by really wanting to, to drive home exactly how big geologic time is and and uh, you know what kind of time periods we're talking here, and he uses precipitation to do it. And I'm not going. I'll, I'll link to the article in the blog post that accompanies this episode. But uh, just to hit two real key points on there, he points out that the total precipitation that falls on the world in one year is about one meter of rain, the height of a golden retriever. <laughs> From there, he adds that the total amount of rain that has fallen on the world since the Industrial Revolution is about 200 meters, the height of the Hoover Dam. The amount of rain that has fallen on the world since the time of Moses is enough to fill up all the oceans. The amount of rain that has fallen on the world since the Ice Age ended is enough to fill up all the oceans four times. The amount of rain that has fallen on the world since the dinosaurs died, that's enough to fill up all the oceans 20,000 times, or the entire volume of the Earth three times, whichever you know way you choose. And then he says that the amount of rain that has fallen on the world since coal formed is enough to fill up the Earth 15 times, and the amount of rain that has fallen on the world since oxygen formed is enough to fill the Earth 100 times. So, Yeah, and he, he goes on to talk a bit more about how geologists and scientists try to figure out what was present in the atmosphere at different times um, in the world's history. And... If you're interested in it, again, the article is great to go into a little bit more detail about how we can extract this data. But I did want to mention something called stratigraphy, and these are techniques used by geologists to determine the geologic time scale. And something that is quite common that is used is something called radiometric dating. Now, this is a comparison between the naturally occurring radioactive isotope, which is a variant of a particular chemical in a material, and its decay products using decay rates. So a good example of this uh, radiocarbon dating is if you took a plant from, you, know, you don't know at this point, but maybe it was 50,000 years ago, it's plant material, and that plant material, when it was alive, would absorb a quantity of carbon dioxide during photosynthesis. And this quantity actually matches the level of the carbon isotope in the atmosphere at that time. And then when the plant dies, it quits amassing radioisotope, carbon-14 specifically, and the isotope begins to decay. So we know this decay rate allows us to determine when in time the plant existed and what, what the atmosphere was like, which is really so cool that we have these sort of instruments available to us, and that's just one part of stratigraphy. Yeah, though, though indeed stratigraphy basically boils down to layers. Yeah. It comes down to going diving down through the layers of, of sediment, that have built up over the ages and seeing what was going on at different levels in the past. Kind of like a really dirty room 
say, like a uh, a six-year-old kid's room. It's just got toys layered everywhere, yeah. comic books, yeah. uh, bits of food and mucus and all the things that come out of a six-year-old. <laughs> and if you were to go in and, and, and start peeling it back and seeing what happened at what point during the last oh, 48 hours that all this accumulated. Yeah, it's funny to think of it that way because I think oftentimes when we think about the Earth, we think of it as a static thing. Yeah. But you don't realize that there are these layers of sediment that we continue to add, sort of like dust falling on a surface. And this is called biostratigraphy. It's the fossil evidence in rock layers. And if you look at something called graptolites, these are extinct planktonic organisms. They have been and they still are used to correlate the Ordovician strata. Yeah. I mean, certainly for me, the big thing that always drives home geology is anytime I'm in a mountainous area mm-hmm. and you see that fossil remnant of, uh, of some ancient sea-dwelling creature. And, and it lets you know that what is now the, a mountaintop or, or the side of a mountain was once the bottom of a sea. It's, and that, right. that alone always just really drives it home for me. Yeah, there's a lot of common sense in that, just looking at it with the naked eye. Yeah, vast periods of time, but periods of vast change when you look at it all together. Okay, so back into the time machine we are now in the Ordovician period, and as we have noted before, it is warm climate. Most of the Earth is covered in water, and um, you know we've got deep water, we've got shallow water, and all sorts of little organisms growing in that. Yeah, and since I, I knew I was taking a trip in the time machine, I did bring my smartphone with me with its <laughs> GPS, and it's just completely going nuts. It has no idea where I am mm-hmm. uh, or even what continent I'm, at, I'm on. And one of the reasons is because... This is an age of supercontinents, where uh, uh, particularly we have a very large one by the name of Gondwana, uh, which includes most of the land masses in today's southern hemisphere, including Antarctica, South America, Africa, Madagascar, and the Australian continent, as well as some other little bits like the Arabian Peninsula and the Indian subcontinent, uh, which have you know since moved their separate ways. And so you've got this supercontinent. You also have this uh, atmosphere, which has carbon dioxide levels that are believed to have been between um, 8 and 20 times their current values. Right. And uh, we have the land, which is uh, pretty Most, barren. Yeah, and a lot of it is underwater, or, or at least a little bit underwater, shallow seas in a lot of places. Yeah, so if you were standing there in the... the uh, uh, Earth at this time, and just imagine looking around you, obviously there wouldn't be any animals, there wouldn't be in, any insects flying in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do have is something called tetrahedral spores, and they're similar to those of primitive land plants like mosses, and that suggests that plants invaded the land at this time. And we have a few animals and plants that began to explore the margins of the land, but nothing really colonizing you know, beyond the beachheads. Yeah, it was, it was an age of underwater life. Um, and a lot of this life began in the previous age, the Cambrian. So most of the main branches existed then. But it was uh, it was during this age, the Ordovician, that things really began to branch out at the family and genus level. And w- as we had mentioned before, we've got those graptolites and uh, trilobites, early mm-hmm. arthropods. We have brachiopods, also known as lampshells, and condonants, which are early vertebrates. They're also red and green algae. They're very festive. Uh, primitive fish, cephalopods, yes. uh, corals, crinoids, which are these sea, sea lilies with feeding arms that are very surreal looking, and something called gastropods, which are pretty much snails and slugs. And you know, within this network, you have extensive reef complexes in the tropics. One of the critters that you may remember from that one illustration in your, your elementary school science book is the Andocerita, which is an extinct nautiloid creature, similar to the, the modern-day nautilus, mm-hmm. except 
the the shell kind of looks like an ice cream cone. So they kind of look like ice cream cone squid. So th- that was one of the creatures that definitely had an impact on me when I was little. Well, an impact is saying, well, putting it a little too strongly. Uh, I noticed it at least when I was a kid because it's like, hey, look at that squid. It's like it's like a ice cream cone. I think that's one of the things that captured my imagination is the fact that there are so many creatures during this period that have s- since gone extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I mean, it kind of boggles the mind to think yeah. of the different sorts of configurations and designs of these creatures. Yeah, though many of in many of these, like you said, these are the roots of all modern day life. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, just so many of these things are extinct now. Uh, I mean, you, you you have a few survivors of sorts. You have the horseshoe crab, of course, which has really been a successful design that hasn't needed any update in the ages. Uh, for the most part. Your modern nautilus is a callback to the cephalopods of that ancient day, mm-hmm. uh, as we discussed in our, our Kraken episode. The trilobite itself is pretty amazing when you think about how many different forms of trilobite there were in those days. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 species mm-hmm. of trilobite, and we're finding new species of them every day. The smallest known trilobite species is under a millimeter long, while the, the largest ones includes uh, species from 30 to 70 centimeters in length, roughly a foot or two in length, if you want to translate that. So I'm, that's pretty amazing, too, because I used to think a trilobite was just, there's the trilobite, that was just one little critter that we just happen to have a lot of fossils of today. But it's just a, a, a catch-all for a number of species. Yeah, was the, re- the reason for that is because you say 20,000 different species. Yeah. And then, of course, you can see why it's so successful, because sort of winnowing its way through the ages and trying to figure out what was working and what yeah. was not working. Um, so successful, and that's the other thing, so successful in a time. This was a time when trilobites could just pretty much own the sea. Uh, and that their ownership of it really didn't last too terribly long. I mean, longer than, I guess, human ownership of anything has lasted, but certainly they're not around today. Well, and I'm thinking that a jaw bone might have something to do with this, and we're going to take a break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about how we owe our jaws to the Ordovician period. All right, we're back, and we're talking about the jawbone and how the jawbone really doesn't become a thing until we're smack dab in the middle of the Ordovician period. Mm-hmm. So what did things have before jaws? Well, okay, you have, to, you have to think back, all right? Imagine, again, these seas. Most of the animals that are really ruling it here uh, are things like trilobites, are things uh, like cephalopods. And you do have some fish, but they're very primitive fish, and they do not have jaws. They have more like slits. And mm-hmm. they're pretty cool looking. If you look up some of the images of these, um, you know, the Ordovician fish have large bony shields on their head. They have small uh, rod-shaped or plate-like scales covering their tail. They look they're like armored fish, but they just have that slit-like mouth, and it really limits what they can do. To put a fine point on it here, they cannot run the roost here. They have no chance at dominance. Because it's the it's, it's the cephalopods that are eating everything. Those are the dominant predators. All these slit-mouthed fish can do is just run around and hope that a squid doesn't grab them. But with the development of the jaw, this changes everything. Suddenly, they are the ones who can start becoming the dominant predators in the ocean, and it really tips the scale. I have this image of a James Bond villain. Jaws, I think it was his yeah, name, yeah, or yeah. Jaw. Jaws. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now I, I'm imagining these, these primitive fish with these giant like jaws. The, yeah, like they just yeah, slap them on. <laughs> but you can see where the advantage would come in. Um, there was actually a genome duplication during this period that allowed the ancestral gill arches to modify themselves into jaws. And as yeah. you say, this made an enormous impact because these early vertebrates went from being prey of invertebrates in the ocean to dominant predators in their own right. 
So we can definitely point to that development and say thank you, because can you imagine us without jawbones? Yeah. Uh, I we obviously we, wouldn't be successful as a species. If we'd we just didn't be have mumbling them. around naked while squid and other, or some sort of highly developed squid, I guess, ruled over us. You know? We just, everything would be mashed into baby food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that may, some people, that may be your fantasy, but, uh, <laughs> but. It can be convenient. <laughs> it can be convenient, I guess, you know, being hand fed or tentacle fed, uh, mush by your squid overlord, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad it turned out the way it did. Yeah. Uh, but that's not all. There are a number of, of uh, adaptations that we can we can look back to the Ordovician period and say that's that's where that made it onto the blueprint. So here are just a few of the things that occurred in the Ordovician period, which we can look to in our own bodies and say this is when it made it on the blueprint. Divisions going on inside the brain, mm-hmm. the actual way that our brain is, is divided. We can look back to that period and say this is when those divisions began to take place. Uh, you look to our immune system. You can look at things like uh, the clotting factor. You can look at uh, more complex uh, evolved immune systems, uh, such as antibodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, carotene and skin became more numerous. Kidneys became uh, popular all of a sudden. Uh, and <laughs> the thing to do in the Ordovish period. Exactly. It's like suddenly you need a kidney, so we started developing them. Uh, additional skull elements, again, like the jaw, the lens and iris of the eye, mm-hmm. the inner workings of the ear, and uh, interestingly enough, blood vessels that actually go to the heart. Yeah, so again, here's the, the base machinery that we have. I guess you could call it the base model yeah. uh, of the human being being developed during this period. Yeah, even though most of the stuff is going to die out, the changes that take place here are going to influence the next phase. That's right. And as you say, die out is, is a huge marker of this period. As we know, the Ordovician began with shallow, warm seas, but the end of the period experienced a 500,000-year-long ice age. And this was triggered by the drift of the supercontinent, as you mentioned, Gondwana, to the south polar regions. Yeah, that's the thing about this. You look back on it, it's like this paradise where all of these uh, mm-hmm. little creatures unknowingly are just they are just living it up in this uh, these shallow seas of Gondwana. And meanwhile, Gondwana is steadily making its way on this path of doom <laughs> toward the, uh, the, the southern tip of the planet. Yeah, and that's what uh, ended up with our mass extinction here of some estimates of 60% of marine life wiped out, though not the trilobites. They uh, got to live another day in another period. But the end of the period was marked by a glaciation event, and it's called the Hernation Glaciation and this is when we saw a drop in sea levels and eventually gla- glaciers across large chunks of Africa and South America. Okay, so this has been driving scientists nuts because mm-hmm. they're not quite sure why glaciation would occur. Because it's a high CO2 level. Exactly. Uh, this whole age is defined by high CO2, so you have a natural greenhouse mm-hmm. uh, factor going on, which, as we all know, tends to melt uh, glaciers and uh, and cause global warming. Right, would have this, this warm climate. So they're right. saying, why would there be a sudden change? And we say sudden, and we're talking yeah, in again, a geologic sense, deep sudden, time. Yeah. And again, this period was 45 million years long. Um, but there is a couple scientists, and in particular, Timothy Linton of the College of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Exeter. And he put out this theory and he, that proposes that the first land plants may have caused a drop in CO2 levels, bringing about the glaciation and indirectly causing the extinction event in the oceans. And so they're saying that if you look toward these, or if you look to early mosses, mm-hmm. that they may have released large amounts of nutrients into the oceans, causing vast al- algal blooms. Okay, no big deal, right? Except for that 
these algal blooms will then absorb a lot of the CO2 in the atmosphere, and that causes the climate to turn colder abruptly, sort of, and then bringing about the end or Vichyan mass extinction. So along with this, though, ironically, is that when the oceans cooled a bit, even more life proliferated Mm -hmm. at first because you could have more diversification with these cooler climates. But, of course, as that became more and more intense, what you have is less and less regions of the oceans actually being very hospitable. And then, of course, what is surviving is then, you know, trying to get the same sort of food source and that's what ends with this mass extinction. So that's one theory. It is still somewhat of a mystery. And actually, if you look at all different periods of time and you see extinction, um, and certainly we think about the dinosaurs, we are still struggling to find out exactly what went on. Yeah, there's another theory that holds that tectonic activity led to increased weathering, which pulled carbon dioxide from the air and cooled the climate, which uh, then, of course, triggers the glaciers, as we mentioned uh, Mm -hmm. before. But again... Just one more theory as to what exactly was happening here. Yeah, apparently the Appalachian uh, Mountains, scientists are fingering and saying it's that tectonic activity that actually was sort of the death knell ah. to the atmosphere at that time. And certainly you do see fossils uh, when you're hiking up in the Appalachians. Indeed. So there you go. There's a little introduction to the Ordovician period. I hope that, uh, that, that like me, you, you maybe give a little more uh, thought to that one illustration in your elementary science book. Maybe you had two illustrations, uh, and you were lucky, but I just had the one. And realize that it's, it's more than just one page, one insignificant page out of Earth's history, but a very important chapter. And certainly, if you want to try to imagine alien worlds, uh, you, you can't do any better than looking back in time at the different phases of life on this planet. This was really an, an alien world, and certainly the, the kind of thing we can conceivably find out there in the universe somewhere. Can yeah. you imagine landing on an Ordovician world somewhere and, and experiencing this? No. Stepping and wading through all of it? I would just, I mean, just to be able to scuba dive in those oceans would be an amazing thing to see. Um, so thank you guys for time traveling with us, and, and thank you, Gong, the trilobite, <laughs> for, for accompanying us. Yeah, another thing about the, the trilobite, by the way, just that I was reading about, is that uh, it is a fossil that you can hold in your hand. And I think that's one one reason that the trilobite resonates with us so. Because, uh, you know, things like, like a Tyrannosaurus rex, it's a bunch of bones. You have to spend all this time assembling it, looking at it, standing back. But the, the trilobite, you can hold this little piece of history, this fossil, in your hand. And there's something... There's something kind of magical about that. Well, and just, I mean, I'm looking at my necklace right now and just even looking at it, it reminds me, it's so sculptural looking, and it reminds me of some of the Geiger stuff in terms oh, of, yeah. like, the exoskeleton. And I don't mean it in Geiger in, like, uh, the more horrific way, but the more sculptural and, yeah, like, yeah. really beautiful parts of nature. Uh, yeah, there's a kind of bi- biomechanical aspect to it, for yeah, sure. Yeah, So, So, yeah, thanks, Lucy, for uh, sending that in. Uh, again, Lucy Lamb Designs. Uh, she has a few of those uh, on the site as well, I think, some that are uh, made out of black polymer clay. So, yeah, they're very cool. Yeah, Yours is a limited edition, though. It's white. So. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and no one can have it. Sorry. All right, well, let's call over the robot and see if he has any mail for us to read. All right, we uh, received a couple of bits of email regarding our map episodes. We have uh, three of them. As we're recording this. Two of them have, uh, have published, really. We heard from a listener by the name of Martinez. Martinez writes in and says, Hi, Julie and Robert. It's Cam again from the Philippines, and I was just listening to your episode on maps. Like Julie, I adore maps, not only because they're useful, but because I find them very aesthetically pleasing. To be fair, I don't think all maps are beautiful, but there's a lot 
that are quite beautiful, especially the really old ones, the ones with here be dragons on the edges, for <laughs> instance, or the ones from the Age of Sail. They're not all accurate, especially compared to the contemporary maps, but I think they're a great visual reminder of a time when the world seemed so much larger and so much more mysterious than it is now. I also completely agree that maps alter the way we perceive the world. It reminds me of a time during my undergrad when my world literature professor showed a traditional version of the world map, pointing out that Europe was in the rough center, whereas <laughs> the Philippines was somewhere on the edges, almost like an afterthought. The next map he showed was altered, and it placed the Philippines and the rest of Southeast Asia in the center and placed in Europe and the United States on the edges. That, that image uh, was revelatory, showing that the iconic world map isn't as iconic as we thought, but merely one possible way of viewing the world, one made iconic because no one has ever really thought to question it. If one were to put the Philippines and Southeast Asia in the center, my professor asked, would we be as dismissive of our own country and its culture? Likely not. Finally, you two uh, discuss maps in fantasy novels, and I do have to say I love them as much as I love real-world maps. I like knowing where the characters are at any given point in time. I'm a big believer in geography playing a big role in storytelling, so I like having maps when I can get them. The more detailed, the better. But speaking of fictional worlds, I'd like to ask, why hasn't sci-fi caught onto this yet? Sure, there are plenty of ships' plans and such, especially from Star Wars and Star Trek, but what about maps for all those countries set in fictional planets that crop up so frequently in space opera-type novels? There's much talk of interplanetary and intergalactic empires, but why has no sci-fi writer thought to draft up a map showing where all these planets lie? Does faster-than-light travel render maps obsolete? Perhaps, but I would still like to see maps for such empires, or at the very least, maps of the individual planets used in these stories. The only one I know of was one that was done for Star Trek, which showed almost all the planets involved in all the series up to Deep Space Nine, I think. But they're just for Star Trek. If there are any sci-fi series out there with maps like that, or even for just individual planets, I'd really like to know. Anyway, sorry for the long email. Thanks for the great work you both do on the podcast, though, and I hope you keep blowing our minds. Well, thank you. That was some lovely thoughts there on maps from Martinez. Yeah, that was great. And I'm glad that he brought up the political aspect of maps, too, because that's something we could have done an entire podcast on. But that was a good example of of how we see the world. Yeah. And again, it gets down into that area we talked about where you have a map as a vision of the world as it is, but it's also a vision of the world as it is perceived. Mm -hmm. What is the center of our map? What is the center of our place that we create out of this space? Like, that's... That's essential to our understanding of ourself and our understanding of, of physical reality. So yeah, and our assumptions that we don't even question until you know someone says, "Hey, wait, that's that's a bit off." Yeah, yeah. So uh, so there you have it. A uh, wonderful bit of uh, listener mail there. If you would like to reach out to us, if you would like to share interesting things with us, be it a personal story, a cool link, a photo, or or a bit of art that ties into something we're talking about, you can find us on. Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You can also find us on Tumblr, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And we also have a Twitter feed, and our handle there is Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.